He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 29 Lost Places Mr. Terrific and Ray Palmer made themselves at home at the Crystal Palace in the Arctic, spending their days between the kitchen, the laboratory, and the living room. Seeking out solitude, Clark explored deep into the halls of his family's ancient fortress. He walked down the passage to the right of the main hall's central altar. Along its corridor were a series of adjacent doors. This was the passage Kara had emerged from. Behind one of these doors, was her home of Argo and the realm of Kandor. Clark was nervous to dare and open any of them. He walked down the corridor of doorways, unsure of what lay on the other side of them. One door in particular stood out as he passed. It had an ornate window, revealing behind it a vast wild land contained by a massive arboretum. Inside flourished a diverse ray of alien flora and fauna. Clark promised himself he would return to explore this small terrain yet he continued down the hallway until he found its terminal. At the passage's end, under a crimson light, stood an altar similar to the one in the central chamber of the Crystal Palace. Resting on its top was an unusual device, presumably of Kryptonian origin. The small machine had two handles and a large, smooth, crystalline disc as its face. To the side of the altar was a lifted circular platform similar to the one his parents' holograms appeared on. Clark spoke aloud to test whether this platform was connected to the central chamber's altar. Father? In response to his voice, the circular platform lit up with the image of his father, Jarrell. Kalel, my son, what is it you seek? The light surrounding the device forebode an eerie purpose. For whatever reason, it was placed in the deepest reaches of the palace. What is this? Why is it kept here? The hologram of Jarrell mechanically answered. Should Krypton want to punish its enemies and criminals, they are sent to the Phantom Zone, a realm null in existence, neither growing nor decaying. This machine teleprojects those criminals into the Phantom Zone where they are held prisoner for eternity. Clark's eyes widened. He feared what hordes of Krypton's worst lay inside this frightful machine. An eternity of suffering was too much punishment for anyone. Yet for a moment it crossed his mind. If Savage was as immortal as he claimed, perhaps Clark could use the Phantom Zone to hold him. The thought made Clark shudder. Jarrell's holographic image awaited further questions. But Clark walked away, preferring to learn no more than he already had. Making his way back up the corridor, Clark stopped at the room with its own ecosystem. Exploring this place and sitting among the alien creatures inhabiting it, Clark made this exotic garden his personal escape from the world. He wondered, was this what Krypton was like? Days at a time slipped by there as he allowed himself to go on, oblivious to the state of the war. Yet the truth of it was inescapable. When Clark visited the farm a few times a week for dinner with Martha and Kara, the two of them were full of news on recent events. 
They brought him up to date on the many battlefronts around the world and the mixture of armies fighting in them. No faction fought alongside any of the others. President Luther's coalition of nations opposed the Kaznian alliance, while both multinational factions simultaneously fought the army of the unified sodality. Each side lashed out on a divided front against the other two. Yet Kaznia's armies crept ever forward. Clark was tempted to imagine how easily he could stop the war by sending Luther, Savage, and Ras al Ghul all to the Phantom Zone. Yet he reprimanded himself for the thought. Martha pulled Clark out of his head with a slice of home-baked apple pie. Well, that's enough about the war. How are you enjoying your sabbatical, Clark? I hope you're spending this time writing your book. Kara looked up from her pie. Ooh, what's your book about, Clark? As he savored the bite in his mouth, he tried to come up with a response. Martha answered for him. Oh, I don't think Clark's decided just yet, but it's one of those things he has to just do. I imagine he could just knock a book out in a day or two if he were just to put his mind to it. Once his pie was swallowed, Clark could humbly disagree. I don't know about that, Ma. A lot more goes into writing a book than just typing fast. I know, but I've seen how much thought you've got going on behind those eyes. You've probably already thought through a few books by now. Kara began bubbling in her seat. I want to learn how to write. Will you teach me, Clark? Clark swallowed another bite of pie. We'll have to teach you to read first. Oh yes, I learned to read Kandorian and Argo. I'm sure you'll have no trouble learning to write in English. It can get a little bit unintuitive at times, but you'll pick it up, no doubt. How about we start after another slice of pie? Evening tutoring became a part of Clark's routine, though as he guessed, Kara learned the ins and outs of reading and writing in just a couple of months. Each night, after their lessons were completed, Clark flew back to the Arctic. There, he would undoubtedly find his roommates either working on an experiment or pondering some far-out idea during their downtime. Should he catch them awake, they would often attempt to persuade him to stay a while. Mr. Terrific greeted Clark enthusiastically in the rounded, padded living room. Superman! Pull up a pillow! Don't just slip away into your fortress of solitude, my man! We were just talking about Task Force X and whether they have metahumans. But then we started asking, where did all these metahumans come from? Any ideas? Clark had only considered this matter a little before then. Huh. That depends. Do Arthur and I count as metahumans? Jean Jones thought he had the answer to this question. I would say no. We are not from Earth. So you and I would be something entirely different. Well, I'm from Krypton, but Arthur's from Earth, or at least the oceans of Earth. Being cousins, we're not all too different, really. Ray Palmer sat especially upright, with a sparkle in his eye. Okay, now that does change things. Where do we draw the line between Kryptonians and humans, let alone the line between humans and metahumans? My cousin, Kara, isn't even from this dimension. Would she count as a metahuman? And what about Diana? I'm not so sure what she is, you know? Jean Jones sat forward. That is a good question. Would I count as a metahuman? A smile lit up on Ray's face. So, who wants to stay up all night running genetic tests? This was not an evening activity Clark looked forward to. Instead, while Michael and Ray fervently went to work, testing everyone's saliva samples, Clark invited Jean Jones to join him for a walk through the palace. Together, they made their way down to the southern wing, 
toward the Arboretum where Clark spent his time alone. Jean Jones chuckled to see the long, stark, radiant passageway. It was identical to the hallway on the northern wing of the palace where they were all spending their days and nights. Only here, the passageway was uncluttered by Ray Palmer's equipment and cables strewn about. Jean wore an amused grin. It is only a matter of time before Ray has expanded into the other hallway entirely. He will be relieved to find there is twice as much space. Ha ha. I'd rather not open any of these doors if I can help it, though. And why is that? One of them leads back to Kara's homeworld. You've heard of Krypton's reputation. From all Kara tells me, I'm not in a hurry to meet more of our people. As far as I'm concerned, these doors can stay closed. Agreed. I am all too familiar with the ways of Krypton. John Jones's mirth disappeared entirely as his forlorn eyes surveyed the many doors along the walls. Clark had suspected for some time that his and Jean's homeworld were somehow connected. What happened back on Mars, Jean? The two of them continued down the long corridor, as Jean drew in a long and slow breath. We Martians aren't very different from humans. Our origins are very much the same. Earth did not exist at the time, at least not like this. Mars was a planet teeming with life fostered by the Kryptonians. Yet they were tyrants over us and used us as they pleased. When we rose up to take the planet for ourselves, they ignited the sky and rained fire on us. Jean Jones slowed his walking to a near halt. His eyes gazed down the endless hallway and beyond. Clark remembered how Jean would telepathically comfort him and tried his best to do the same for his friend. Their pace picked up once again and Jean continued. My family and everyone I knew died that day. I only escaped thanks to the transporter malfunction that eventually carried me to Earth eons later. As you know, by then, Mars was dead, Krypton was gone, and the person that saved me from my prison turned out to be the last Kryptonian. Jean exchanged a short glance and smile with Clark. I could not bring myself to accept it at first though meeting you made it easier. You were like no Kryptonian I have known before." Clark was beginning to hear the sentiment with increasing frequency. It was meant as a compliment, but it gave him a sense of imposter syndrome. He hoped it was true. Well, you know, I tried my best. But thanks, I'll take the compliment. Your humility is a perfect example. Oh, come on, stop. You're making me blush. Thank you, Kalel. I truly owe you my life. You owe me nothing, John. Though, I always appreciate your company and help. Here, you have to see this garden I found. They were approaching the Arboretum in which Clark spent his days. Check it out. What do you think? As Clark opened the glass doors, Jean Jones stood before them, mouth gaping, eyes wide in wonder. He walked in staggered awe into the wild preserve. Clark followed behind amused by Jean's shock. This is where I've been hiding out when I need a place to get away. Jean Jones collapsed to his knees. Only then did Clark notice the tears that streamed down his friend's face. Jean smiled. I thought I would never see these marvelous creatures again. The Bowser trees of Marbon Valley. To think, before the Kryptonians destroyed us, 
They took the time to preserve our greatest wonders. Clark looked around the room with fresh eyes. Huh. So this is all Martian? Indeed, yes. This is the home I remember. Clark cherished the solitude he found in this wild garden. But in light of its origin, he felt it selfish to keep the space as his own. By all means, John, please make yourself at home here. It's the least I can do to make up for my ancestors. Jean Jones stood back to his feet and dried his eyes. We are not condemned by our forefathers, Kalel. You have nothing you need to atone for. I'm not so sure. It feels like I have everything to atone for. At least, that's what I've been told. I'm supposed to redeem my family's failings or something, and there are many failings to redeem. The best any of us can hope for is to redeem our own failings, and even then, redemption doesn't always look the way we imagine it. I often wonder if there was anything I could have done differently to save my family. Yet in the end, if I had done anything differently, my fate would have been to die along with them. My only redemption most days is to forgive myself. Clark found himself also shedding some tears. Well, either way, Jean, feel free to spend as much time here as you like. Jean Jones took Clark up on his offer. Over the next few weeks, Michael and Ray also began spending more of their time in the Martian Arboretum as well. Ray was already considering bringing some of his equipment to this wing of the palace. I'm thinking this is the perfect time for a campout. What do you say, Clark? Can we light a fire in here? Clark looked to John Jones to gauge the idea. John's eyes widened. Perhaps it's better we not start a fire here. As crestfallen as Ray may have seemed, it did not stop him from setting up a little base camp. The garden was perpetually warm enough to never need a fire. The room's light source unnaturally followed its own clock regardless of the time of day or year on Earth. In the synthetic night, the four of them lay on the ground looking at the artificial sky. Jean Jones shared his memories of his home as they listened to the Martian nightbirds in the nearby jungle. In the late autumn, the Justice League came together for the first time in months. They each brought seasonal dishes of food and had a potluck feast at the Arctic Palace. Batman was joined by Nightwing and Robin. Wonder Woman brought Steve Trevor along with Etta Candy, and they all met Barry's nephew, Wally West, for the first time. Wally was a tall, lanky, freckled young man with an unusual shade of red hair exploding from the top of his head. Within a couple of seconds, he had shaken everyone's hand. Oh, wow! It's like, wow! It's so cool to meet you all! I mean, like, seriously, wow! The surprise of the night was to see Roy along with Oliver and Dinah. His series of operations had been a success, and he now touted a cutting-edge cybernetic right arm. After dinner, they all went to the Arboretum, where Roy was happy to show them he still had his archery skills. The party inevitably turned to business when Batman asked Steve for whatever updates he could provide on the warfront. I wish I had more to share, but my clearance is currently under some investigation after I tipped you all off to Luther's plans, so I can't really be sure I'm getting any real intel at the moment. But I can say this much, we're seeing an uptick in crime nationally, and I don't mean everyday burglary or anything like that. Some high-profile criminals we haven't heard from in a while are going after technology. They're showing far more hustle and initiative than they used to, and we suspect they're working together. Batman's eyes narrowed. I've been noticing this. After the mass prison break, it's no surprise they formed some allegiances. 
Yeah, well, whatever they're working toward is still a mystery. We have no idea where they're disappearing to either. Even while the nation faced enemies on two fronts, as domestic crimes ran rampant, the Justice League was still considered public enemy number one. They had no power to help when called upon. That Thanksgiving, Clark could see they needed each other most of all. By just getting together and offering some mutual sympathy, they managed to help one another. It was the kind of support they didn't even realize they were hungry for until after they got it. As winter approached, the sun stopped appearing in the Arctic altogether. When Christmas came around, Clark extended Martha's invitation for his roommates to join them at Kent Farm for dinner. This was the first time that any of them had met Kara or Martha. Clark worried that there'd still be some residual resentment for the way Kara's presence had turned their lives upside down. But it was nothing of the sort. Martha's warmth and Kara's charm won the night. The two of them were happy for the company, and the multi-course dinner and dessert left everyone stuffed. As pie plates were collected, Martha broke out a picture album for everyone to gather around. They all laughed and cooed over Clark's baby pictures until the night was blurring in the morning. After Clark and the others had returned to the Arctic and everyone had gone to sleep, Clark found himself wandering through the palace. Idly, he'd returned once again to the crimson-lit altar at the end of the Southern Passage. There, the Phantom Zone projector stared back at him. Drawn closer to it, Clark looked deeply into the smooth, shiny disc that made up some kind of lens. At first, he thought it only reflected his image, but when he looked past the reflection, he saw a world inside. Captured in some agonizing frozen state, Clark could make out many of Krypton's prisoners. Some appeared to be hideous monsters, while others looked like normal people. Clark wondered if these people were innocent, or if possible, on the inside they were far worse than the ravenous beasts alongside them. Was this Phantom Zone the place where people like Savage, Luther, and Ra's al Ghul belonged? Clark worried that just by asking the question, he might be the real monster they feared him to be. Torn from this thought, a chill ran down Clark's spine as John Jones contacted him telepathically. Batman had just arrived and brought company, but it was not Nightwing or Robin. From the hangar bay, Batman emerged with three other figures. Clark and John Jones recognized two of them from Bruce's memories. They were Ra's al Ghul and Lady Shiva. The third man stood protectively by the demon's head as his bodyguard. These visitors gave Clark some pause, yet Batman assured him with a solemn nod. This meeting was necessary. Clark guided them to the plush living room at the top of the passageway. The room was not in the best of conditions for guests to arrive. Several of Michael and Ray's things lay strewn about and the two of them lay sleeping on the lower tiers of the round room. Ross Ogul's eyes could not hide the slight disdain he felt seeing the space he was brought to, but he did not let it dissuade him from getting directly to business. Kalel of Krypton, it is an honor to meet you. He paused for a moment as he, again, took in the state of the room. As you may have already guessed, I am Ra's al Ghul, and I believe the two of us have business to discuss. What business is that? Why, this war, of course. I believe we face common enemies and are perhaps the only two factions with a common interest. Do we have common interests? Mr. Terrific and Ray Palmer were slowly stirring awake, disturbed by the nearby voices. Batman stepped forward. Kalel, listen. Lady Shiva convinced me we need to consider this alliance. I trust her. You should at least hear him out. Clark's only knowledge of Ra's al Ghul came from the memories Bruce had shared with him. This man had few misgivings for cruelty and murder. Could any good come from working with such a man? Clark did his best to be open to the possibility. 
I'll listen. Go on. Whether you believe it or not, Kalel, this war can be dragged on for generations. Or we may work together to end it and save the world from needless suffering. As long as the parties involved form no allegiances, or while the Earth's heroes remain in hiding, the fighting will drag on. But if you and I can find some form of agreement, your people may gain asylum within the nations of the United Sodality, while offering your unique abilities to stop Vandal Savage. Clark took a deep breath. He did not like this prospect, but the alternative they were living offered no promise of an ending. Looking one more time at Batman, Clark could see he had no doubts and was not wavering in the slightest. Despite his nagging conscience, Clark was ready to make a deal with this devil. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Son of L is written and produced by myself. This show is independently produced and commercial free. I love telling this story and appreciate any support you can offer to keep me going. Please rate and review the show, as well as recommend it to friends. It really helps. I can't thank you enough. Another substantial way to show support is by becoming a patron at patreon.com bluefoot. I'm already halfway through writing season three. You can help me get the rest of the way there. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC Comics and Characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by John Ostrander, Tom Mandrake, Otto Binder, Al Plastino, Julius Schwartz, Gardner Fox, Gil Kane, Robert Bernstein, George Papp, Alfred Bester, Martin O'Dell, Dennis O'Neill, Neil Adams, Joseph Samichson, Joe Serta, Mort Weisinger, Paul Norris, William Moulton Marston, Harry G. Peter, Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Jerry Conway, Don Newton, Robert Kaniger, Carmine Infantino, John Broom, Dick Dillon, and Rick Estrada. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Blue Dot Sessions, Javi Pitkanen, Kark Osamayo, Frequency Decree, BioUnit, Monplacer, Electrolyze, Masato Abe, and Uncan. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com, a unique game and experience to share with friends. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 30, Legions of Doom. <laughs>